morning. We are, if you've been with us any time recently or been following along online, we have clearly been walking through uh, Paul's letters to Titus, and now we find ourselves moving further into 1 Timothy. We have been moving along in our study that we've titled Letters from the Pastor, and so we are getting into really Paul's letter to Timothy and to the church right here in 1 Timothy. Now, last week we started this letter and we focused specifically on the introduction. And so after really an incredibly powerful greeting and introduction that Paul pointed Timothy into the church and to us today to the grace and mercy and the peace of God and therefore seeing the goodness of who God is, we now are going to move immediately into some of the issues that Paul wanted to address in the church at Ephesus. So with our passage today here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and really for the remainder of chapter 1, Paul is going to call the people to persevere in the gospel. You see, in the face of false teaching and and false teachers and false doctrine and, and the other challenges that a church may face, notice what Paul will do as we continue to walk through the rest of this chapter and through the rest of 1 Timothy. Notice that Paul will not call the believers to simply walk away from that which is hard. You see, here's the reality when it comes to churches, both in Paul's day and churches today. You see, churches are going to face challenges. Churches are going to undergo changes. And what the Lord will do is the Lord, as we see here in 1 Timothy, the Lord will lead leaders to a biblical and hopefully prayerfully directed new direction for the church. Now, as long as that direction is both biblical and has been prayed over by the leadership, then we as believers in Christ need to embrace those changes and embrace those challenges that come with it. You see, here's the reality before we get into our passage today. We are obviously living in a new time. And it doesn't matter what side of the spectrum you fall on, whether you are a faithful follower of the CDC or whether or not you believe the CDC is a hoax. It doesn't matter what political party you affiliate with. It doesn't matter whether you're northern or southern or what your history, heritage, or background is. The one thing that we can all agree on at this point is we are not going back to normal. Life has now changed for us because of this pandemic. If you, don't li- if you don't believe me, then I would encourage you to watch sports. Life has changed. If you don't watch sports, then I would encourage you to go visit your favorite stores and walk in and, and tell me, are they like they were or is there now a new normal? Maybe you're not a shopper and I don't blame you there. Maybe you're a foodie and you love food and you're happy your favorite restaurants are back open. Well, walk into your favorite restaurant and answer this question. Is it the same as it was or now have our restaurants even been forced to make changes? You see, here's the reality. The world is making changes all around us. 
And so in light of the pandemic, it is only apparent and obvious that we as churches are going to have to change. You see, the reality is as we move forward, and who knows what moving forward looks like. We can prayerfully and hope that one day churches will, will reopen the way they were used to, but the reality is as pastors, even in our area, in speaking to the pastors, we have no idea what tomorrow will look like or what the new normal will look like. But what we do know is this. In the midst of change and in the midst of challenge, it doesn't mean that we can all of a sudden abandon what it is that we believe. Now let me add a footnote to the changes here. Because you see, if you are a part of a church that is making changes that are obviously not biblical, or you are a part of a church that has made changes that have not been prayed over, then you at that point have every right and reason to question and when necessary to walk away. So when we look at Paul's text here in 1 Timothy 1, we need to remember that all of 1 Timothy is a letter about the church. It is not a letter written to an individual. It is a letter that was written to a pastor who was leading people. So when speaking to Timothy... Paul realizes that he's speaking to a pastor of a church that is actually struggling. And so Paul, as we get into 1 Timothy chapter 1, begins to explain how the gospel forms both who we are and what we are to do as the church. And so as we continue our walk through 1 Timothy chapter 1 into chapter 2, we are going to begin to see Paul begin to formulate a theme for Timothy and for the church at Ephesus until it culminates into one sentence which occurs in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15 which says this so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God you see when we read this letter we need to realize that we are getting one of the clearest pictures of what the church is supposed to look like and how the church is supposed to conduct itself when it gathers for worship so you see, Paul's words here are not just important for the church in Ephesus, but they are also important for the church today. So let's prepare ourselves for what Paul is about to teach Timothy and the order that he is about to give to the church at Ephesus. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would invite you to turn with me now to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we are be going to begin reading in verse 3. And once you have found your place there, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now again, this is Paul writing to Timothy, writing to the church at Ephesus, the faithful believers who have gathered in Ephesus. Here are Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Paul writes... As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of, law, of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and murder, and murder and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for this day. And Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be before you and to praise you. Father, we thank you for the words that come from your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to, to sing your word, to hear your word spoken. And God, we praise you for this opportunity now in worship to be able to study your word together. And so God, we pray in these next few moments, prepare our hearts for your truth. And God, we pray that you and you alone would be glorified. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for delighting in us. For it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, clearly what we have here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, is really Paul's first instruction to Timothy and to the church. Now, notice here what Paul is calling the church to do. They are calling both Timothy and the church to guard the gospel. You see, with all of the challenges and the struggles facing the church in Ephesus, Paul begins with the faithful, uh, by calling the faithful to protect and to guard the very word of God and the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, this is important because we need to remember that Timothy was leading a church in Ephesus. This was a city that was filled with paganism. Immorality was rampant and idolatry was everywhere. And so because of these issues, Paul now tells Timothy to protect his people from the teaching of false doctrine. And so Paul's charge here is very clear. Paul says to Timothy, address anything and everything that pulls people away from the gospel. You see, if we today lose the word of God, if we today lose the gospel, then we lose everything. Now, some of us here may believe that there are more urgent matters within the church. We believe that there are urgent matters that need to be discussed that are more important than the word, like things like prayer or leadership or mission or how to care for one another. We even think there are more urgent matters like dealing and addressing music in worship. But the reality is this. For Paul, there was nothing more important to him in this moment than protecting the very word of God that our ministries and our worship and our churches are founded upon. So you see in our passage, 
Paul teaches clearly that we are to guard the gospel by learning how we are to both use the word, but then also how we are to not use the word. Now, first, we're going to see this in verses 4 through 7. We see how not to use the word. Now, I know at this point you may be thinking, Pastor, why did you skip over verse 3? Well, I didn't. You see, in verse 3, this is actually uh, the charge to Timothy to remain in Ephesus for the purpose of making sure the word of God is taught correctly and that right doctrine is being spoken of in the church. Now, think about this for a moment. You see, we live in a modern time where everyone says, whether they're a part of the church or not, they say, well, when it comes to the word of God, it is simply a matter of interpretation. Now, you see, Paul and Timothy recognized that this was not true. You see, Timothy recognized the great call that was upon his life. It was the same call that James clearly lays out in James chapter 3, verse 1. And so Timothy sees both the, the high calling placed upon his life, but also the unique need and desire to make sure that what is taught and what is done in the church is right according to the word of God. Now just imagine this for a moment. Imagine if our leaders and our elders and our deacons and our teachers, imagine if our churches, imagine how different they would all of a sudden look and move if we administered the word of God correctly. You see, I personally believe at this point it would give us a high view of the word of God where, where it would be the word of God that was leading us than whatever issue that comes up during the day. I believe it would also give us a high view of the church and how important it is to belong to a church as a member and yet at the same time to defend the church and to fight for unity within the church as a faith family. Rather, in our society, whether you're Christian or not, we tend to treat church and church membership like it was a Sam's Club membership. If you don't like what they offer, then go to Costco. Get a membership there. They'll give you a fancy card. You get fancy hours to shop for fancy stuff. But the reality is that's not how church should be. So in our text, Paul reveals to Timothy that we must not add to the law's demands. Now notice this in verse 4. Paul says to Timothy, do not, uh, do not allow them to devote themselves to myths or to endless genealogies. Now, we've already seen Paul speak to this in Titus, but here it is again. These are the items that are being taught by the false teachers. You see, they were taking extra-biblical writings, including stories and myths about different Old Testament figures that may or may not be true, and they were using them to add to God's word as if they belonged in the holy word of God. And so Paul tells the church and he tells Timothy to avoid this talk because it promotes more speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. You see, these conversations or these additions to conversations, if you will, they only cause more confusion for people as opposed to teaching people directly from the word of God, which is what we need. 
You see, false teachers were placing rules and regulations on God's people that were not in God's word, nor were they supported by the very word of God. And so Paul moves from there and teaches uh, Timothy here. He says that we should avoid thinking that the law saves at this point. You see, this is not the purpose of the law. We clearly see that in verse 5 and 6 in our passage when it says the aim of our charge is love. Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Paul then goes on to tell Timothy in the church that certain people have walked away from these teachings and they now have wandered into vain discussion. Now the teachings that Paul references here are the ones believed by the false teachers saying that obedience to the law, including obedience to some of the extra biblical laws that they were adding could help someone be saved or better yet could help someone earn favor with God. In other words, these false teachers speaking in Ephesus were proclaiming a Jesus plus theology. But here's the reality. The same problem that Paul sees and speaks of in Acts chapter 20, the same problem that we see throughout Paul's letter to Titus, the same problem that we see in the church in Ephesus during the writing of 1 Timothy, this is the same problem that we still see in the modern church. You see, anytime someone tries to add to God's gracious work in the gospel, we end up perverting it from its original meaning. So here's what happens. We hear, and we hear wrongly, teaching that we can, by doing certain works or following certain rules or obeying certain laws, we can now earn God's favor. In other words, this is when we begin to treat church and the ministries of the church and stewardship of the work of the church as a checklist of things that we check off our to-do box in order to earn favor with God. You see, this teaching, which is still alive and well in our churches today, this is actually counter to the actual biblical gospel. You see, we cannot and should not support a Jesus plus theology. When it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have done nothing. We can do nothing. There is simply Jesus Christ and what it is that he has done for us. We get to verse 7. And now we begin to see that when the word of God is used in the wrong way, the results can be damaging and disastrous for the people and for the church. Paul, again speaking here, speaking of the false teacher, says, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You see, Paul here is saying that, um, that a wrong use of the word of God is producing both arrogance and also ignorance among those who teach. You see, these false teachers in Ephesus were beginning to speak of biblical matters confidently even though they knew nothing about what it was they were beginning to speak. Now, I love what Philip Ryken says at this point. He says that when you get to verse 7, there is a dangerous combination here. And it's the combination of arrogance and ignorance. 
You see, because of the arrogance and ignorance of these false teachers, because of their own pride in hearing their own words, they were now producing confusion and intentional deception among those who were hearing. This is why Paul then speaks of their speculations going back to verse 4 and their vain discussions in verse 6. You see, Paul is acknowledging that their teachings lead to deception because people begin to think that there are additional rules beyond God's law. And by following these additional rules, they can be saved apart from Christ alone. You see, this teaching, again, is alive and well in our churches today. Now, it may not look like the false teachers in the church at Ephesus during Timothy's time as the leader of the church and during Paul's writing to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus. Rather, today, this is where we find the prosperity gospel. This is where we find the, the, the teachers on our screen who say, if you put your hand on the screen, you will be blessed. For $19.95, if you order this hanky that I've just now wiped the sweat from my brow from, we will send it to you, and in a week you will be blessed with $100,000. This is also where we find faith healers. They teach us that the more you give, they teach us that the more faith that you have, the more God will bless you, and the more God will heal These are the same people in our communities and churches today who say things like this to us. The reason why you are sick is because you have no faith. The reason why your child died is because you lack faith. What's even more unfortunate in our churches today is this. This is also where we find politics taking over the church. This is where we say, no longer does Jesus save, rather we need this political party to save us. Again, that's a Jesus and theology. I mean, I've got news for us. It doesn't matter whether you follow the donkey or the elephant. Both animals were created by God for the purpose of God, for the glory of God, and therefore God is sovereign over whomever may sit in office, irregardless of who that person may be. You see, at the end of the day, our president will not save us. At the end of the day, our Congress will not save us. At the end of the day, our Supreme Justices, Court Justices will not save us. Our county commissioners will not save us. Our mayors will not save us. Our governor will not save us. The one who will save is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. That is where our hope should be found. You see, this name it, claim it nonsense that we see from politics, that we see from faith healers, that we see from prosperity gospel preachers, this this nonsense that they teach is not teaching the living word of God. You see, when it comes to our lives, our lives rest in the sovereign hand of God. And so here's what we can say. We can say that what happens in our life happens because God allows it. 
because he alone is sovereign over all. So you see, as believers, we need to be aware and pay attention when we listen to those who teach the Bible or when we hear those who try to memorize or quote scripture for a particular purpose. You see, whether it be from the pulpit or from a podium or from a political platform or in a coffee shop or even in our classes, we need to weigh their words carefully. And if they add to the law's demands, if they add to the teaching of the word of God, if they begin to teach things that go beyond Jesus Christ and those things will then lead to salvation, then Paul tells us we need to avoid this teaching at all cost and call it out. You see, there is a wrong way to use the word of God. Now we go from there into verses 8 through 11. And Paul, again, in speaking to Timothy into the church at Ephesus, teaches us how we are to use the word of God. So after addressing several of the wrong ways to use the word of God, Paul now shows the church how the word should be used. Now notice this. When Paul begins speaking of the laws here, Paul is not talking about the dietary laws or the regulations for sacrifices, nor is he talking about the law given to Moses in the Old uh, Old Covenant. Rather, uh, these laws that we've just mentioned have now been set aside with the coming of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of the prophecies of Christ. Rather, what Paul is doing here, when speaking of God's law in the word, he is speaking to the transcendent moral laws which still have application for God's people of all ages today. Now, for our conversations today, what we need to know is this. There are actually three uses to God's moral law. The first is this. We are to use God's moral law in order to show God's restraint of sin. You see, for the believer, this helps us recognize the boundaries between good and evil so that we can avoid sin. That's why when you look at verses 9 and 10 in our passage, we see that the law was clearly written for the lawbreakers. And then from there, Paul gives us a list of specific sins in order to help us, the lawbreakers, identify these sins in our lives and restrain or remove them. But here's the reality. You see, because of our sin, the law's restraint is only temporary. You see, for each of us as lawbreakers, as sinners, eventually we give in. And eventually we disobey the law of God. Thus, our need for a savior. Secondly, we see that we are to use God's moral law to show God's condemnation of the sinner. You see, when we sin, the law becomes a testimony against us. The law now makes our rebellion apparent, and this realization is actually an essential part of salvation. You see, the law now opens our eyes to the fact that we stand guilty before God. That's why we cry out to God, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's where God, through the gospels, the good news, gave us Jesus Christ, the law keeper who paid the penalty for the law breakers. 
Now, I love what Martin Luther says at this point in speaking of the law as the hammer of God. He asks this question. He says, what is the purpose of this humbling and bruising and beating down that comes with the law? It serves to bring us into grace. That then leads to our third use of God's moral law, which is to show God's will for the saved. You see, now that we know that God's law reveals to us our sin-filled, wretched, and broken state, we now see that through the law, Christ has come and now has redeemed us. And so now as believers in Christ, we want and desire to know what it is that we are to now do. So God's word through the law now instructs us on what should happen next for the believer. You see, as we rest in the righteousness of Christ, possessed by the Spirit of God, compelled by the ongoing grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus, led to walk in the will of God. We as believers in Christ can now look to God's law and see that it is no longer a crushing hammer, but rather it is a divine guide. And so now we have to ask the question, when it comes back to Paul here in his text to Timothy, which use of the law does Paul have in mind here? Well, I think for our conversation today, it seems to be the restraining function of the word. You see, instead of following the false teachers and their wrong application of the law, Paul points to the law's role in curbing sin in the lives of people. You see, that's why Paul then again comes back to verse 9 and tells us that the law is for the lawless and for the disobedient. Now, without going into detail of each word used here, I believe we can see that they're fairly self-explanatory. Paul now gives us a list in verse 9 and verse 10 of those who are considered ungodly and sinners or those who are considered unholy and profane. Now, as believers in Christ, this doesn't mean that we need to overlook these verses. Rather, we need to pay attention to this particular list because as As we look through this list, we will see that we all have fallen short of what the word of God commands of us. You see, the reality is this. We are responsible for the sin in our lives. And so we, as believers, need to be rooting sin out according to the word. It's like I love what John Owens has been uh, often quoted as saying, we either need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You see, that's why we then see by Paul's own admission, coming back to our text, we see now our responsibility for our sin and we see ultimately our need for a savior. And so Paul then leads us into verse 11. And he says that we are called to live in such a way that is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now here's the beauty of verse 11. Paul, in only a way that Paul can do, literally points us now back to verse five where we see the aim of Paul's entire conversation. When he says the aim of our charge is love. You see, here's the reality as believers. 
And we spoke about this several weeks ago when we were in Titus talking about church discipline. As believers, we should lovingly lead people by the word of God. We should lovingly lead ourselves, our families, and our faith family away from sin according to the word of God. And by the grace of God found in the gospel, we are to then lead people according to the word to the loving arms of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see... Paul's words for the order in the church, remember they started with grace, mercy, and peace. And now we see the aim is love. And so when it comes to believers today, the love that we should have for ourselves and for one another, that love comes from a right heart. It comes from sound doctrine and it comes from a faith that is real and apparent in our lives you see only the gospel of Jesus Christ can produce the type of response that Paul is speaking of within the lives of believers you see at the end of the day there is no list of rules there is no list of laws that will allow us to earn favor with God. Now at this point, some, I actually had somebody ask me about this. They asked this question, well, pastor, what do you say to those who never hear the word of God? What about those people who are in that remote jungle who may never hear of the word of God at all? Well, I would encourage you to go back and read Romans chapter 2 particularly verses 14 and 15, where we read that even if the word of God is never directly read, the law of God is still ingrained upon the heart. You see, here's the reality. Whether you are a believer or not, we know the difference between good and evil because God has put his moral law within our hearts. But here's the reality that we, the believers, recognize. We cannot keep God's law perfectly. We can, we have, and we will fall short of God's glory. But like Paul says to Timothy, like he says to the church at Ephesus, there is no extra law that will help us ever to earn favor with God. There is no extra teaching. There is no screen that you can put your hands on. There's no coin you can keep in your pocket or a handkerchief that you can wipe your face with that will help you earn favor with God. Rather, what we need is the one who obeyed the law perfectly and his name is Jesus you see Jesus's perfect obedience to God's will 
His perfect obedience to God's law means that he was able to die on the cross to pay the price for our disobedience and then rising from the grave, Christ alone opened the way for us to unite our lives with his and therefore we can now be counted as righteous before God. No human achievement, no human accolade, no award can ever accomplish what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Nothing will ever come close to touching what happened through the power of the resurrection and the victory that is found in the empty tomb. So you see, in a world that is constantly drifting away from the wonder and the mystery of the gospel, as believers in Christ, let us hold fast to what it is that the word of God teaches us, realizing that the only thing that is going to save us is Christ and Christ alone. So when it comes to our teachers and our leaders, Let us test them. When they begin to quote the word of God, let us test what it is they are saying against the word of God so that at the end of our day, we will use our words, we will use our lives to defend the word of God and to ultimately guard the gospel. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for this day. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to to just be in this place right now, to praise you for who you are, to thank you that you are sovereign over all things. Father, we thank you that historically speaking and even in modern day times, we thank you that even when false teachings are all around us, when, when false doctrine is all around us, when we begin to place our hope in anything else, Father, through your word, you have taught us that our hope is found in Christ alone. And so, Father, in the midst of days of uncertainty, in the midst of frustrations and temptations and tensions and trials, when we feel discouraged and lonely. Father, may we turn to you. May we turn to your word and seek you. Because, Father, you alone save. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law. We are thankful for how your law reveals your holiness We thank you for how your law reveals our brokenness. Thank you for how your law reveals our need for a savior. And we thank you for the law fulfiller, our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ, who because of you, we can now stand redeemed and righteous before our Lord. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. 
Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your will. Thank you for your sovereign plan. Thank you for the love that you have shown us, a love that we did not deserve, and yet you gave it freely. And so as believers, Father, may we guard your word. May we guard the gospel. Father, may we be proclaimers of truth to those who desperately need it. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for delighting in us. And Father, we pray that in the next few moments, may you and you alone be glorified. For it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.